Hello, everyone, and welcome to HR Works, the podcast for HR professionals. We really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy day to join us. I'm the host of HR Works, Jim Davis, and the editor of the HR Daily Advisor. This podcast aims to put valuable tools and knowledge into the hands and ears of you, the HR professional. Those tools will arm you with the best methods and strategies for attracting, motivating, and retaining top talent. With limited resources and time, it can be challenging for employers to initiate annual Family and Medical Leave Act and Americans with Disabilities Act training programs for their managers and supervisors. However, the Department of Labor routinely reports that supervisor training is a top area of non-compliance for employers. If organizations don't properly train their frontline employees, costly litigation could result. As several recent court cases demonstrate, there is a compelling business case for prioritizing annual training to ensure supervisors and managers are equipped to navigate a potential FMLA or ADA request from an employee. Today, we'll explore best practices and resources that support employers in integrating supervisor training into their compliance and training programs. Founded in 1992, the Disability Management Employer Coalition, or the DMEC, is the only association dedicated to providing focused education for HR professionals who manage absence and disability in their organizations. Through in-person and online events, certification and training programs and tools and resources, DMEC delivers effective strategies and best practices to maintain regulatory compliance, improve workforce productivity, and enhance employee engagement and health. DMEC supports over 14,000 members across the United States and Canada and offers the knowledge and networking they need to effectively manage their integrated benefit programs and expanding workforce challenges. To address these challenges, DMEC provides a training program called FMLA ADA Training for Supervisors and Managers that includes a 25-minute video, a 10-question quiz to test knowledge, a certificate of completion, an ADA and FMLA roadmaps, and the ability to track who has successfully completed the training. Find out more information about DMEC at www.dmec.org. We are pleased to have the CEO of DMEC, Terry Rhodes, with us today. Terry has extensive knowledge and expertise in all aspects of absence and disability program management, and prior to DMEC, dedicated her career to designing, developing, and managing various organizations' absence programs. Terry has been leading DMEC strategically since 2012 and became the Chief Executive Officer in 2015. Terry holds an MBA, a Certified Professional in Disability Management, and a Certified Case Management Professional from the Insurance Educational Association, Certified Leave Management Specialist. Thank you, Terry, for taking the time to join us today. Thank you, Jim. I'm excited to participate in this podcast. Absolutely. Um, I understand that now is a critical time for organizations to train their supervisors and managers on the FMLA and the ADA. Why is that? I think you hit the primary reason uh, when we did the introduction for this podcast, Jim, but the Department of Labor and the EEOC have both cited lack of supervisor training. I'm going to talk about that specifically to the FMLA and ADA, but first I just want to take a step back and talk about how quickly and ever-changing our workplaces are around absence and disability 
uh, particularly laws um, like sick leave laws, uh, paid family leave laws, um, and having managers and supervisors with a foundational understanding is critical. Unfortunately, many organizations don't put the same kind of priority on training managers and supervisors because there's there's competing priorities like productivity. And we know that particularly around FMLA and ADA, how managers perform, what they say to the people that they supervise, and how they react individually to their staff reinforces that organizations need to do everything that they can to ensure that their supervisors understand the basic laws around FMLA and ADA. When I talk about supervisors, I don't want to um, I don't want you to think about just a, a, a frontline supervisor. We're talking about team leaders. We're talking about managers. We're talking about directors. We're talking about HR people who are advising managers and supervisors. It's really collectively understanding and that there are um, job responsibilities. There are employment rights. Um, around these laws. I think one of the other more compelling reasons to train managers and supervisors is that supervisors and companies alike can be sued directly for FMLA noncompliance. I think that's a pretty compelling reason uh, to train your managers and supervisors. And also, when we talk about the Department of Labor, they oversee FMLA compliance and they perform workplace investigations, usually on site. And one of the top areas of non-compliance is lack of supervisor training. The EEOC has also cited lack of training in many areas of workplace discrimination which includes the ADA. Do you think that when the DOL, for example, identifies top noncompliance, does that directly correlate to them pursuing those cases in particular or focusing on those kinds of cases going forward? Yes. The Department of Labor has specifically cited supervisor training as an area for employers to be aware of. And um, um, you know, as an aside, we have a, the Department of Labor speak at our, we do an annual conference on compliance uh, for FMLA and ADA. And we have um, Helen Applewaite, who's the, the chief um, FMLA um, officer with the Department of Labor. And um, she provides information around uh, what are the top findings? And, you know, as a way for employers to uh, prepare for a worksite investigation to ensure that their managers and supervisors have been trained and that there's documentation. And you mentioned also that they can be sued directly. Um, employers can be sued directly. Do you mean by employees? Yes. 
So there wouldn't even have to necessarily be a focus from the DOL for you to get sued for this kind of noncompliance. Correct. That's correct. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, what, what are some of the potential compliance implications uh, should an organization not train their managers and supervisors? What kinds of uh, uh, teeth do these organizations have when they come after you? Well, when, when you have untrained supervisors who lack knowledge and awareness around these laws, they might react inappropriately or say things that may put the company at risk. And these, these actions really uh, come in the face of noncompliance with the law. And it's important to note that an employee doesn't have to specifically request an FMLA leave or an ADA accommodation. There aren't any magic words that they have to say. And they don't typically go to their supervisor and say things like, I want to request a leave under the FMLA and I want to invoke my job protection rights. You know, they don't say things <laughs> like that, nor do they say, I need an accommodation under the ADA or I need a reasonable accommodation. They say things that are much more subtle, like I'm having surgery in three weeks and I'm going to need to take six weeks off from work. And I might need to work in a limited capacity once I come back. You know, it might be easy for a supervisor to say, oh, I, I, can't, I can't have you away from work. We're in a you know, production crunch right now, and I need you to be here. Um, or it might be you know, easy for a supervisor to just flat out deny it and just say, I'm sorry, you can't take time off from work. And, you know, another example would be, um, you know, uh, an employee who comes to their supervisor and says, you know, my mom is experiencing early signs of Alzheimer's and I need to take a few days off in the afternoon and go search for a care facility for her. Again, a supervisor might be thinking about what's happening at work and may deny that request. And so these kinds of supervisor errors can result in costly litigation to the organization. And, you know, finally on this topic, I want to just say that the damages that are included in litigation go far beyond the monetary penalty. When there's a lawsuit or an investigation or a complaint that's filed, there's workplace disruption. And that means you're pulling your supervisors off of their jobs. You're interviewing employees. They may have to attend a deposition. You spend time trying to locate documentation, hopefully, that you kept around your discussions and decisions. You um, 
are then experiencing lost work time for everyone who's involved in these investigations. And this can have a negative impact on workplace morale. And so when managers and supervisors are uneducated about the employee's rights under these laws, they can say and do things that have a negative impact and be very costly to an organization. It occurs to me that also once you, you know, once your organization, particularly if you lose a suit, you're kind of on the radar now, right? Um, do you find that that's the case that companies that have been sued successfully for certain violations get looked at more closely going forward? Well, I don't know that uh, specifically to be the case, but I do see <laughs> when I review the cases um, that come up that there are uh, the same employers <laughs> that that uh, keep coming up as uh, you know in, in these in these citations. So I'm not sure though that they're targeted. Um, I do believe though that, you know, there's, um, there's practices and sort of once you're on, you know, once there's a finding, then it may be easier to have another finding. Right. Um, I understand that you have uh, some recent cases that you want to discuss and some of the associated costs with those. Yes. Um, and I, I think before I do that, um, I would like to just uh, give a word of caution that court decisions differ from region to region or circuit court to circuit court. And what applies in one circuit court may not be applicable in another jurisdiction and may also be contrary to federal law. So that's my disclaimer, and um, I'll jump right into the first case, Jim, if you don't mind. This first example is an ADA violation, and it comes out of the state of Wyoming and the town of Evansville, and it's Mestis versus the town of Evansville. This particular case involved an employee who had injured his back on the job uh, and later, after he had returned to work, asked his manager for a piece of equipment that would assist him in snow removal. And snow removal was a part of his job. And while he had been back to work, he still experienced some back problems from time to time, as many people who have a back condition do. But in addition to denying the request for the piece of equipment, the manager also allegedly made disparaging remarks about his ethnicity and used abusive language. There were multiple charges uh, of retaliation, hostile work environment, and the ADA. And uh, Wyoming is in the 10th Circuit. So um, that's the facts of the case, Jim. Yeah, that's, uh, it sounds very um, complicated. What does it all mean? So the, the gist of this case is, and the court even went so far as to say that this was not the first time that they have uh, had this finding, and it is that, in quotes, there is no requirement for an employee to use magic words like ADA 
or reasonable accommodation when making a request for an accommodation. Instead, what employers need to understand is that employees need only make clear that they need some form of assistance that will help them perform their job because of their disability. And so there's a, you know, there's a lesson learned here. We talked about that a little earlier is employees don't come forward saying, I need a reasonable accommodation under the ADA. They see things like, I need some help doing my job. Right. Uh, this next case came out of the state of Washington, and it was Life Care Centers of America, uh, where an employee was working as a certified nursing assistant. And uh, the EEOC brought this lawsuit forward, and uh, the, the lawsuit uh, states that Life Care refused to accommodate uh, this pregnant employee's request not to lift anything heavier than 15 pounds. And the request was really just for the last part of her pregnancy, the last trimester of her pregnancy. And yeah, in our go ahead, Jim. Oh, I was just going to say that in our experiences, um, when we when we write articles about these kinds of things, uh, this is something that a lot of employers get wrong. Yes, and I think uh, you're absolutely right, giving us that uh, cue there, Jim, that employers need to be especially cautionary when it comes to how they treat pregnant employees. We're going to talk about what exactly happened in the rest of this case um, and what the EEOC um, assessed against this employer. But basically, uh, life care centers told this employee that they only provide light duty for employees who were injured on the job. And they placed her on involuntary and unpaid leave. So to reiterate what, what Jim said, you know, we know, I mean, you, you all should know this if you don't, that pregnancy disability must be managed in the same manner as any other disability. And if a company provides light duty for its injured workers, it must also consider light duty for pregnant employees. And at a minimum, you must explore a reasonable accommodation. So let's fast forward to what the ultimate outcome was. They were mandated to a three-year consent decree. And I will tell you that if you have not ever worked under a consent decree, it would be very similar to the investigation that was undertook when the EEOC initially brought charges. It's disruptive to your business, it's time-consuming, and it's not something that you want. Um, but Life Care agreed to this. They also had to pay the employee $170,000 in lost wages and compensatory damages. Now, here's the kicker and what became so time consuming and uh, much more difficult for this employer was the requirement to provide training on Title VII, which is a Civil Rights Act, um, and pregnancy disability 
to all employees. And when we say all employees, that includes management and all the human resource staff who advise them. So pretty significant findings on this particular case. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, as I'm listening to you talk about these cases, you know, and, and have our conversation, it occurs to me that there are probably some pretty serious challenges that organizations face when they operate out of multiple states, you know, with all these different having to navigate state and federal laws, which would be different from, from place to place. Um, what are what are some of those other challenges or is that a challenge that they have to handle? And what are some of the tools that organizations can use to mitigate those challenges? Well, absolutely, that's a challenge. It, you know, logistics, how an employer delivers training to its employees uh, is a challenge. And if you're in a multi-state environment or you have multiple locations within a particular state, you have to ensure that the information that's being provided to your managers and supervisors is consistent. And you have to make sure that if you're providing training through a internet uh, or through email, that there's a way for you as the company representative to be assured that that information was understood. So another challenge that we see frequently is just making making the business case to upper management that they need to invest in annual training. When you think about the challenges of uh, just supervision in general, annual training is, in some states it's required in harassment and discrimination. And, you know, we believe that annual training should also include Uh, workplace practices, and that includes FMLA and ADA. You want to make sure that also if you're providing this training, that you have a way to track it and that you can pull reports or pull information as needed to determine how many of your managers and supervisors have undergone this training. You know, uh, we have a a similar uh, training program that provides all of that, um, you know, tools like a video or uh, a system where you can pull reports. And, you know, we suggest that you make sure that if you are providing this training, that you have some way to document either in a learning management system or in your HRIS system. And um, I think the other thing that you want to make sure is if if you're in an organization that uh, relies on in-person training, and you know, while that's okay, um, it becomes much more complex and much more difficult to deliver if you're in a multi-state uh, environment. Thank you so much. Those are great answers. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. Well, thank you, Jim. I appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. Listeners, we are always interested in suggestions you might have for what HR Works should cover next. Feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at HR Works Podcast or to me directly at jdavis at blr.com with any thoughts or concerns you have about the podcast in general or if you just want to say hi. Thank you for listening. This is Jim Davis with HR Works.